Hi, I'm Carmen LeBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LeBurge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles, arms out wide. If we're gonna fear, we fear no evil. We will rise by your power. We will go by your spirit. We are bold. If we're gonna stand, we stand as giants. If we're gonna walk, we walk as lions. Good morning. Good morning. It's Tuesday, the day after Labor Day. It's like get back to work day. Hey, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Back to work today. Thrilled to be with you. Thank you so much for including me in your day. This is Mornings with Carmen. This is the Faith Radio Network. However it is you're tuning in, we sure are glad that you're sharing your time with us today. Today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day comes from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Whew. Money is the root of all kinds of evil. We need money. We use money. Um, It's... It's sort of the the grease that makes um, culture and society and certainly the economy uh, move around. And um, but the love of money is different than just recognizing that it's useful in terms of the way we function together in relationships in a culture, particularly a capitalistic one. And so um, just think about where your heart is today in relationship to money. Yep, because a good complimentary text to the text we read last week about storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven versus storing up for ourselves, you know, barns full of, well, money of one variety or another. Okay, um, England is going to have a new prime minister. Her name is Liz Truss. Her full name, Mary Elizabeth Truss, but known by everyone as Liz. She's going to become the 15th British prime minister to serve under the reign of Queen Elizabeth II. That's pretty extraordinary. Winston Churchill was the first person to experience what Liz Truss is going to experience today, which is that Queen Elizabeth is going to, um, I think the actual word, it's strange, but the word is crown. Anyway, the the prime minister of the UK. So Winston Churchill um, from 1951 to 1955, served as the first of what will now be 15 prime ministers to serve under the reign of Queen Elizabeth II. I just thought that was worthy of consideration this morning. Um, Queen Elizabeth is now, this is the way you will hear it said, the longest serving or the longest living sovereign monarch Think about that for just a second. That is the way she is described in many places, the longest living sovereign monarch. But I would say, I would ask you, is that true? Revelation 19 says this, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he reigns forever and ever. What Revelation confirms, the prophet Isaiah foretold in chapter 9, 
For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Read uh, Daniel chapter 7 for another uh, confirmation that there is a king on the throne forever and ever, the longest living sovereign. Paul talks about Jesus in Ephesians 1. What God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority, all power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age that is to come. The reign of Christ is from everlasting to everlasting, and of his kingdom there is no end. The writer of Hebrews describes it. In chapter 1, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Indeed, kings and kingdoms, prime ministers and presidents, and all the like will pass away. But Jesus reigns forever and ever. He is the living sovereign monarch, and he reigns over all others and all nations, even as they rise and fall. The kingdom of our God is advancing. It's growing. It's flourishing. It's shining right now. So today, let's give allegiance to our king, to our king, even in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. Caleb Smith joins us again today. He's a political science professor at Cedarville University. He is also a fan of the Georgia Bulldogs, so I am sure he is celebrating today. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Carmen. How are you doing today? I am I am well. I am well. Go dogs, right? Go dogs, absolutely. Yeah. Good good win on on Saturday night. Yeah, not much of a contest, but a good win. Um so uh, Putin has denied Mikhail Gorbachev a state funeral. Remind us. I mean, I know that it, this is um, this is now maybe old news to some people, but it might be right. new news to others. Um, who is Mikhail Gorbachev, and um, and and what's going on in terms of the denial of a state funeral? So Mikhail Gorbachev was uh, the the last leader of the USSR, you know, the Soviet Union, and uh, he really managed to oversee the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And we could talk about that, you know, what that looked like. And I think Gorbachev sort of gets credit for it, even though he probably doesn't deserve credit for it. Um, and so Gorbachev oversees this transformation of the Soviet Union and the, really the break apart of it. And Vladimir Putin, who who worked in those circles at that point, um, views the dissolution of the Soviet Union as one of the greatest tragedies, he says, uh, of the 20th century. And because of that, he's really not willing to give Gorbachev the uh, the ultimate recognition 
of Russia that he was willing to give to Yeltsin and, and other leaders from that period. And so um, Putin will not be at the funeral. And uh, it's it's an interesting set of politics working itself out right now in Russia. Okay, so you make an interesting observation. Gorbachev oversaw the dissolution of the Soviet Union, maybe, you know, credited um, for that. Um, but you, you point out that maybe that's not even quite accurate. Maybe, you know, he was just the guy who happened to be standing there at the time. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth of that. I mean, Gorbachev was a, was a communist. You know, there's, I don't think there's any way around that. He wanted to reform communism to some extent. He knew that it, what the system wasn't working well, and he knew there needed to be changes in the system. But he was not. He didn't arrive there to dissolve the Soviet Union and to move to sort of a uh, you know a new world order or anything like that. Uh, the reforms that he put in place were really designed just to to make some tweaks in the system. But once he made those tweaks, it got out of control very quickly. And I think you have to give him credit for one thing in particular. Um, while the uh, while the Soviet Union was breaking apart, he sat on top of an extraordinarily large military and a stockpile of nuclear weapons. He could have used either one of those to try to pull those breaking away republics back in. You know, he could have deployed troops to East Germany, for example, to prevent the wall from coming down. He could have done a lot of things to use force to make it a very bloody process or maybe even to stop the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the communist bloc. And he chose not to do that. And I think you have to give him credit for that. Uh, but I don't think that means he sort of showed up in leadership ready to start to to dissolve things and move into uh, more of a liberal future. That wasn't his plan at all. You know, here in the United States of America, I think what we hear echoing in our minds um, is Mr. Gorbachev tear down that wall. We hear the the words of our president um, at the time, Ronald Reagan, um, and we, you know, and we think, you know, well, there were some moral forces at work at the leadership level um, globally that um, that influenced that particular event and time period as well. Yeah, no question about it. I mean, Gorbachev was suffering um, under a strained economy, a great deal of pressure. Uh, the West was out producing Russia uh, and the Soviet Union in general. He knew the Cold War was not going well. And it was largely due to Reagan's consistent, not only rhetorical pressure and political pressure, but economic pressure that was pushing the Soviet Union to this point. And uh, Reagan drew a very strong line on it. And just said, as you said, uh, he wanted this thing to be pushed to some sort of a climax, hopefully not a militaristic one. Um, and that, you know, it's one of Reagan's great successes of his presidency, I think. Of course, the wall came down during the Bush administration, <clears throat> but everyone, I think, properly gives Reagan the lion's share of the credit for uh, for ultimately winning the Cold War. Yeah. We're going to continue our conversation with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith here in just a moment. Um, when you think of the word Philadelphia, you know, certainly ringing somewhere in your ear um, is a biblical Greek word um, that is a word for brotherly love. Is Philadelphia still the city of brotherly love? Hmm. We're going to ask that question next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, 
Thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. I'll be seeing you in all the old familiar places. Continuing our conversation with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith. He's a political science professor at Cedarville University. Mark, I thought it would be um, interesting today to uh, tee up a conversation about um, the way people in certain cities begin to behave like one another um, and whether or not they live up to or into, uh, you know, their the, even the name of their city. So this caught my attention recently. There was a study. Now, to be fair, um, this is like self-reflection. So they ask people across the country in cities across the United States of America, um, really to kind of describe themselves and their neighbors in terms of um, how they treat one another, how rude they are or how polite they are. So um, certain people in certain cities find one another particularly polite. And this really doesn't come down along blue or red lines. So that's one of the reasons I thought I would tee this up. The people of Philadelphia look around at each other and say, we are not living up to our, um, you know, the name of our city. In fact, we're the rudest city in America by our own self-judgment. (laughs) yeah i mean it's not the city of brotherly love it's uh, commonly referred to as the city of brotherly shove and it's just not a very welcoming or good environment i think by most by most measures you know when they talked to the people in philadelphia um they talked about their unwillingness to welcome outsiders they've talked about their absorption in their cell phones uh their use of the speaker on the cell phone in public an awful lot um, just not a very polite place, uh, at least according to this survey. Yeah, so I just thought it might be fun for us to remind people of these Greek terms for love. Agape, we think of as the unconditional love of God, maybe the greater or the greatest type of love. Um, storge, this familial love, maybe the the love between or in the parent-child relationship might be one way to think of that. Eros, you know, erotic love, I think that one is easy for people to identify. But maybe this um, philia, phileo, philos, maybe this is harder for people to um, get their hands around because it's not just like love between actual brothers. This is like friendship love. Maybe we could just talk a little bit about what 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 friendship love is. Are there ethics related to philia? Well, I think maybe the best correlation we see in Scripture is uh, when Christ tells us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Mm. I think that's sort of the idea that we have going on here. I mean, in, in a big city or in a small town uh, like, like like I live in, uh, we have this obligation in front of us to treat people uh, like we would want ourselves to be treated. This is a universal ethical concept, and Christ articulates it. And it's just shocking sometimes how much we fail to live up to it. Um, and it's easy to get swallowed up in an environment, you know, and to grow to look like that environment. Um, just sort of eth- norms of behavior that you're that you're around, and you just begin to mirror and reflect. And and but we're called to a higher standard, and and as believers, uh, we're called to stand out in that, even in an environment like that, you know. So can you imagine a bunch of believers in Philadelphia who decide to go against the rudeness? It'd be really tough, be really difficult, I'm sure. And you would look weird and you might have a hard time fitting in. But that's, I would argue, that's kind of the whole point of the gospel. Yeah, the the question of how do we love one another um, and then how 
do we love one another, right? There's the, like the functional, how do we love one another? What are the things that, that demonstrate or show love for the other? And then there's the how behind that. Like, I really only do it because I recognize that I am, I am loved. Um, I'm the servant of one who is love. Um, he empowers me. I mean, God never, God never um, instructs us or commands us to do something that he doesn't then give us every resource necessary for the accomplishing of his will. So when Jesus commands us to love one another, Jesus then also gives us the greatest gift of love. Um, and it's the first fruit of the evidence that that the spirit of Christ is operating in us. I mean, the the first evidence of that is love. Yeah, there's no question about it. And I don't think it, in that sense, it's not very complicated uh, at all. Uh, but living it out and uh, you know being willing to stand out from the crowd, being willing to be countercultural, um, there are costs associated with that. You know, it isn't just a matter of am I willing to behave this way? It's am I willing to to bear whatever costs come along with it? Uh, those could be relationships that suffer. Those could be career opportunities that suffer. Um, when you just don't fit in, you know, it's not a pleasant existence for the most part. Uh, I think that's. It's hard, but I think it's it's when you look at scripture, it's very clearly what our calling is. So, Mark, you and I both read this opinion essay in the Washington Post. This is a this is a hard transition. So if you're listening right now, I'm moving away from a conversation about love (laughs) and I'm moving to a very political conversation. Um, It's an opinion piece by Michael Gerson. It's in the Washington Post and it's entitled Trump should fill Christians with rage. How come he doesn't? Talk with us about Michael Gerson's um, opinion piece here and then maybe respond to it. So Mike Gerson, a speechwriter for George W. Bush, uh, I think a very well-accomplished and well-recognized writer. He's been opposed to Trump from the beginning. He's been very outspoken about it. Um, and So he continues to be in this position. And it's a very long, reflective piece about where evangelicals are at this particular political moment. Um, and, I, and I think maybe the most interesting part of the piece is his effort to argue that where we are right now isn't necessarily all that different than where Christ and his disciples were in their own social, cultural, political scene when they emerged. You know, a place really heavily involved in a culture war, uh, very strong sides being taken, um, and a difficult environment in which to act. And Gerson basically argues that uh, we have to take this model that Christ put forward and his disciples put forward and cling to that model as opposed to really this pursuit of political power, which is what we've been, what he would argue we've been all about in America. Um, I think it's a, I think it's an interesting criticism. I think you, you still have things that we could quibble about, uh, but I think it's, it's worth pondering and worth reading and worth reflecting on. Yeah. I think that the question of what is the posture of not only the Christian, but sort of the collective Christian witness. What what is the posture of um, of Christians rightly in this particular political moment in the United States of America? And I think you have to break down each and every one of those parts. Like we do live in the midst of a small K kingdom and a particular period of time under a particular form of government um, at whatever particular point in the life cycle of this nation we're in. Nations rise and fall. This one will as well, or has and will as well. And so you don't necessarily know in the midst of it where you are in the life cycle of a nation. You can make observations about that. But you are a Christian no matter what. 
and under whatever form of government happens to be the one um, that you find yourself in at the point in time that God deigns you should live. Yeah, I think I think the hardest part of turning that into practice is that in America we have a history, and the history is that maybe we were in a more influential position before, and now we're not. Uh, contrast that to Christ and his followers. They're just coming into an environment where they're uh, in the minority and they have to struggle through that. Well, in our in our history, we weren't in the minority, and I think that painful transition is what's made this more difficult for most for most American Christians. Yeah, we might need to circle back, and I mean, it's a few years old now. I want to say maybe five or six years, and the end of white Christian America. I mean, at the time, I don't think we were ready right. to even hear it, um, but it it is, you know, the statistics are now like, you know, becoming realized. It's like walking itself out into reality. And I do think it's helpful to recognize that we move from majority to minority status. And then how do you live um, as a cultural minority? And what, you know, what does that look like to be faithful Christian witnesses in the midst of it? I think that's really helpful. Yeah, I think so. And I think Gerson's piece does a a really nice job looking at the big picture questions. Um, But you know, I'm not going to pretend like it's going to solve any problems. You know, we're we're in such a polarized position right now, um, and it's hard to see us getting out of that polarization, no matter how hard we try. Yeah, Dr. Mark Caleb Smith, thank you as always for joining us this morning. Um, off to school with you um, as you reengage a new semester at Cedarville. We appreciate you being with us. It's always a pleasure, Carmen. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. Hey, let's take a moment um, for Upwards with Max Lucado. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. Ooh, 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 my little pumpkin spice. Ooh, 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 you make me feel so nice. All right, so at the outset of um, the hour, for those of you who happen to be up and listening then, I said Winston Churchill was the first prime minister of the UK to serve under Queen Elizabeth, and then I gave the wrong dates. I was like a whole decade off, and I misspoke, and I should correct that. So thank you so much for those of you who were awake enough to hear it, and then um, for texting in and, you know, like being my fact checkers. I love that. So um, just to be clear, Winston Churchill served as prime minister under Queen Elizabeth from 1941, not 1951. Yeah, I was off by a whole decade. You know, sometimes, you know, making my notes four in the morning, I can be a little off. So thank you for getting me back on track. What's going on with teenagers today? Do you ever find yourself asking that question? Like, what, what, who are those people and what are they doing? Um, Well, first of all, we love them. We appreciate them. They are not the future. They are very much, you know, the present reality. And they are a critical generation in terms of um, the way the world is going to experience Jesus. So although... Among Gen Z, among teenagers today, there's a very low percentage of them operating out of a genuinely biblical worldview. The ones who are, are super passionate about the gospel. They're, they're, they're very passionate about sharing Jesus in, um, because they have experienced him. They don't just, you know, believe, um, they aren't just giving some sort of intellectual assent to a set of ideas They know Jesus, and they want other people to know Jesus. They are very, very passionate. They're also under constant, a a deluge and a rising tide 
of constant information and influence, particularly flowing um, through social media. So how do we equip teenagers to navigate faithfully social media today? Well, that is the mission of Filter First. And so joining us is going to be Hannah George, one of the co-founders of Filter First. Um, She's going to share with us, like, how do we, not, not only what are the tools, but how do we get the tools into the hands of teenagers so that they could be equipped to use them to effectively navigate the world of social media responsibly today? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, sometimes you get up in the morning and your plans don't, you know, completely work out exactly like you thought. I'm Carmen LeBurge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen on Faith Radio. And um, we're going to continue trying to connect with Hannah George, but at this point we don't have her. So filterfirst.org, filterfirst.org. If we don't get to talk to her this morning, we will absolutely circle back around with her. But let me go ahead and continue the cleanup that I started on aisle four just a moment ago. All right, all right. Now, (sighs) Queen Elizabeth didn't begin serving until until 1953. So although Winston Churchill did serve as prime minister under her dad from 1940 to 1945, he was then defeated in 45 um, and served again 51 to 55. So it's that season during which he becomes the first prime minister to serve under the reign of Queen Elizabeth, which was actually the point that I was making. But of course, he was already prime minister. But then, you know, she becomes queen in 53 and he is the first prime minister to serve under her. So everyone was right. All of you were right. How does that feel? This is a nice. How nice is that? Those of you who corrected me that I was wrong, that no, no. I should be referring to him as serving in the 40s. You are correct. And then those of you who were circling back around to point out that, well, she couldn't have been the queen when he was uh, serving as prime minister in the 40s because she didn't become queen until 53. Yeah, it's a little early for a timeline, but there you have it. And this is a community show. So thank you so much for contributing to this community conversation. You can always chime in. The text line is always open, 877 933-2484. All right. Yes. So uh, there you go. Lots of notes on the text line this morning about whether or not I'm right or wrong. Um, mm -hmm, And I might still be not quite right. So, Um, all right. So while we are um, waiting to connect with Hannah George from Filter First, which, by the way, you should just go ahead and check out what we were going to talk about, which is filterfirst.org. and tons of really great resources there for those of you who are raising teenagers um, or just want to know how teenagers are influencing one another even on social media. Um, let, me, uh, let me share with you this good news article that I ran across this morning. And I thought, wow, I hope I have time today to work this in. And look what God has provided, an opportunity for us to talk about this good news story of the day. So Boko Haram is not a good news story. Boko Haram is a terrible, awful, horrible story that is um, continues to unfold in, in parts of Nigeria and elsewhere. And because of Boko Haram, I will say thousands, it, it, it's tens of thousands, um, 
untold numbers of children have been orphaned. Untold numbers. And so um, how is God going to get those kids cared for and raised? Well, God's going to lift up um, mature Christians to take them in. I mean, that is what's going to happen. Um, so the stories um, surrounding this are horrific, um, but but they deserve to be told. And so we're going to talk about a place in Borno State of Nigeria, and we're going to talk about the influence of Boko Haram, um, founded in the early 2000s. Um, it's an anti-Western jihadist group. That's the way I would describe it. And they are merciless. And so um, as Boko Haram would enter villages, here's the testimony of um, Mustafa Bukhar. Mustafa um, was the second of three siblings. He was nine years old at the time this story takes place. Um, He said uh, Boko Haram was invading um, our community. We heard the gunshots and the loud cries uh, from neighboring homes, um, but we did not have time to escape. And then he starts telling the story. Three strangers came into our house with guns and they pushed us all outside and then they pushed our parents back, uh, kept our parents outside and pushed us back inside. He heard his parents um, be murdered in front of the house. And so he says, what were we to do? We were three children. And so we walked with everyone else from Bama to Kandugu. 25 miles in one day from Kandugu to Medigori, another 22 miles. He's now 17 as he shares this story. These three siblings finally connected with an uncle and a grandmother in a city of over a million people. In February of 2007, Mustafa quit his legal practice of 20 years and founded something called Future Prowess Islamic Foundation. It's a primary school that provides free education exclusively for orphans from his city of Maidagari. He has now formally adopted more than 2,000 children personally. He has now personally adopted more than 2,000 children. Um. His concern is, you know, for education. He says Boko Haram destroyed and forced the closure of more than 2,400 primary and secondary schools. 611 teachers have been killed. 20,000 teachers have been displaced. Um, And and he said, you know, I felt, um, who is an orphan? Um, And then he realized, you know, it's not just Muslim children who are orphaned. it's, It's Christian children, too. But could he, as a Muslim, open his school to Christian children? And then he remembered his late father's influence upon him. His father had been an Islamic clergyman, but he had been open-minded enough to allow his six children to get both Western and Arabic educations. When many of his uh, Nigerian neighbors were forbidding the Western education of their children. And so Mustafa and his team retooled their admission criteria for inclusivity and diversity. 
And the schools are now open not only to Muslim, but to Christian orphans as well. He talks about uh, the primary school that he started, and then um, he, he talks about the children that he has adopted um, into his own home and the future that he hopes for his country. And it's one of those stories that I say, um, I say to myself, um, you know, how, how, how can one person influence the future of the world? And if you're going to influence the life of one child today, that's sufficient. That is sufficient to influence the future of the world. Um, because by influencing the life of one child, one teenager, um, you influence the future of the world. But God may be calling you to do something strategically more than that. I mean, I don't know. But God may be calling you to do something strategically more than that. Uh, Maybe you are to use your influence to fund the building of a school in some place in the world where otherwise children will not have a safe place to go, a meal to eat, a uniform to wear, a book to read, a teacher to teach them. Maybe maybe that barn full of resources that you've piled away, maybe God's convicted you in the last few days. I'm not supposed to be storing up for myself treasures um, in barns here on earth where moss and rust, uh, you know, destroy and, and thieves break in and steal. Maybe I'm supposed to be storing up for myself treasures in heaven. And maybe that looks like the names and faces of little kids half a world away in a place where there are no schools because they've been, you know, burned down by bad guys. I don't know, but maybe you are called to do something strategically more with the resources that God has placed within your reach and under your stewardship for the advancement of his kingdom purposes in this generation. Maybe you're supposed to partner with a ministry here in the United States of America that's impacting the next generation. Um, I mean, I don't know. But I do know that the love of money and and the piling up of resources here is ultimately not not satis- it's not satisfying um and that the and craving money leads people away from the love of god and the things about which god is passionate which is the salvation of people the redemption of real human life so i don't pretend to know you know precisely what it is that god is calling you to but here's my encouragement what breaks your heart when you survey the headline news of the day, when you look at what's going on in the world, I mean, at a deep heart level, what breaks your heart? There's every chance that that is your mission, that that is your calling, that God wants you to release the resources over which he has set you as a steward, a manager for a time, you know, for a period of time, And God wants you to press the full force of your life now in that particular direction. If so, what is it that breaks your heart that also breaks the heart of God? And what might it look like? What might it look like to place those resources in God's hands and say, use them as you will to change the world or the life of one child? You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. 
As you know, this is a rebroadcast of what we do on live radio every day. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio, tons of free resources just waiting for you at MyFaithRadio.com. Right now, we're inviting you to share your Faith Radio story. What do you love about Faith Radio? What do you love about Mornings with Carmen? How has this program changed the way you think or the way you live, the way you engage others in the conversations of the day? We really do want to hear from you. Your story could encourage someone else and certainly glorify God. So share what you love about Faith Radio by calling 877-933-2484 and leave us a message today. Again, thanks for listening. Now I'm In terms of the headlines of the day, um, let's give a little attention here to what is going on um, among our northern neighbors. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge. This is Faith Radio. We're having a little conversation amongst ourselves. Something that we hadn't quite planned to do today, but there you go. Sometimes, you know, it's just us. It's just you and me. Thanks for being here or taking me with you wherever you're going. So in Canada, authorities continue the task of processing evidence across what are now 14 crime scenes where 28 people were attacked by two brothers, one of whom um, has been found dead by uh, injuries that are described as not self-inflicted. The other suspect, Miles Sanderson, age 30, is still at large, um, may be injured. And uh, if authorities know the motive for the attack on indigenous people in two communities in Saskatchewan, they're not saying what those motives are. So what is safe to say is that hate and violence continue to rage in the human heart. And hate and violence then continue to work themselves out in community with devastating effects. And so events like this um, can spread fear, and then fear actually changes how we not only feel, but how we treat one another. So physically, like physically, your, our actual bodies, when we are afraid, blood literally flows away from our heart. Now, this is a physical reality, but I am going to make a, a spiritual and emotional and social application here. So when we are afraid, Physically, blood flows away from our heart. Your blood pressure and your heart rate increase and you start breathing faster and your blood flow changes. Blood actually flows away from your heart and into your limbs. Why? Well, because your body thinks it might have to start throwing punches or you might have to run for your life. So these stress hormones surge. Your body actually changes where it is sending, you know, a higher flow of blood. It's pretty incredible. So it occurs to me um, here that Jesus never threw a punch and Jesus never ran for his life. So even though the physical body, when we are facing real fear, when we are afraid and blood flows away from our heart and into our extremities, you know, because... That makes it easier for us to start throwing punches or run for your life. Jesus never threw a punch and never ran for his life. And so I thought to myself, hmm, something different must have been operating in him. He knew what not to fear or how to deal with fear. 
And he certainly knew um, how to lead his people to be a people of peace. So that got me looking around. Remembering that, you know, like fear is an emotion and emotions are given to us by God. And so fear in and of itself is not necessarily bad. Fear is a God-given emotion. It's, it's the mind alerting us to danger, real or perceived. Um, but then fear has associated with it what I'll call anxiety, the feeling um, of our body responding to the emotion of fear. So like, you know, fear is the emotion, but anxiety is the like felt response. And then worry is the, the like come along traveler. Worry is a thought process. Worry is you and I like giving power to the object of fear instead of living in the confident sovereignty of God and in an understanding that things here are um, not as they should be and that God is good even when our circumstances are not. So I'll just make the observation today that fear, worry, and anxiety tend to show up together and feed into each other. And even when um, we don't know why we're feeling anxious, um, it's important for us to like pause and recognize, okay, somewhere along the way, my brain learned to fear in some kind of similar situation. I, I may not even be able to recall the first time that I felt this way about something, but it's now so deep down in me that it causes anxiety when I experience it again. And so when you hear someone refer to, or you in your own life use the word trigger, like that, you know, that's what's going on. Your anxiety, my anxiety is tied to our life experience and our thought patterns. And some of our life experiences and our thought patterns led us to fear. And we now respond with anxiety and worry and we don't even know why. But I will recognize today that you and I have not had all of the same life experiences. We did not develop all of the same thought patterns. And so you are going to respond in fear and worry and anxiety in ways and to things that I am not and vice versa. So how can you and I together look to Jesus and say, well, what could we learn from Jesus about how to respond to or process Fear, anxiety, and worry. Matthew 6.25 maybe is the most often quoted verse um, in relationship to this about the way we process anxiety. Um, I think we can also turn um, in Matthew 6, maybe we read verses 25 to 34 and we talk about our view of God. Um, because my view of God is what is going to help me overcome anxiety by keeping my focus on what lasts eternally and God's goodness, his character. I'm also going to focus intently on God's faithfulness, right? There's a, there's a question and a conversation about trust to be had here. Maybe there we would turn to Matthew um, 8 and 9. Like in Matthew 8 and 9, people are dealing with terminal illness. They're dealing with the death of a loved one physical sickness, spiritual oppression, financial security, physical safety, spiritual warfare, the loss of reputation, the suffering of a child, permanent disability. Like, 
there there are a lot of things that you and I deal with today and our neighbors and friends are dealing with today that are dealt with in in Matthew chapters 8 and 9. I mean, maybe we spend some time there looking at the faithfulness of God, the eternal perspective at work, and how Jesus does really transform real challenges that we face, things that we fear, things that cause anxiety and worry in our lives, and how Jesus handles them. I also think it's important to note that um, in my own experience, turning intentionally, you have to do this intentionally, turning from that which is causing me anxiety or worry, and instead serving others, instead of focusing on you know, what What has my attention about my own life, fears, anxieties, and worries, and instead turning toward the very real needs of others and serving them? Let me tell you that anxiety has to get out of the way because you got things to do. And so I can trust God in the midst of my trials um, in part by using all the resources that God has placed within my reach, including whatever my, you know, physical ability is to respond at the time to that which is causing fear, anxiety, and worry for others. Like you can actually just go and serve. All right. Let's keep our focus on God, on the reality of who he is. Let's gain an eternal perspective on the things of this life. Um, Focus on what will last eternally. Focus on God's faithfulness. Keep our focus on trusting him in the midst of trials. And yeah, then get busy. Overcome our own anxiety by keeping um, be keeping our focus on and actually mobilizing to serve others. All right, you're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. Okay, today is officially the day we can start drinking pumpkin spice lattes. Yes, Paul Perot, my faithful producer? <laughs> well, it's mainly my kind of, I, I made it up, but pumpkin spice opener, just like up here in Minnesota, <laughs> we have a fishing opener weekend. Well, now that we're after Labor Day, the day after Labor Day, pumpkin spice opener. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So do you like pumpkin spice, Paul? Um, not in a latte. But mm-hmm, give mm-hmm. me in a pie. Pump- oh, pie! Oh, 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 oh yes, yes, pie. Mm-hmm. Uh, pumpkin Let them bread. eat pie. Mm. Mm. Yes, yes, definitely. Okay, it's pumpkin spice opener. So open your pumpkin spice in whatever way or form you um, most enjoy. Um, Paul and I might be having pumpkin spice bread, pumpkin spice muffins, pumpkin spice lattes, pumpkin pie. All righty. <laughs> That sounds great. Hey, we got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next here on Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.